Uh, let's ask God now to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved for us this account of this solemn moment on the night before Jesus died. Our Father, we pray in your mercy uh, that we would get a glimpse in Jesus' words of what the cross he is about to die on means for him. And Father, knowing that, we pray uh, that we would trust him and love him as he deserves and live lives uh, which are full of thankfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jesus, uh, for people like us, is inseparably associated with the cross. Uh, but sometimes we can almost think it's something Jesus just takes in his stride. Tough, yes, but so is being a soldier on the Ukrainian front line. A bit sad, yes, but lots of people have died bravely for a good cause. Oh, not something we would want to do, absolutely. But actually it's what he came to do. It's almost like the cross, that's his job. And up to this point in the story, you could almost think that this is the way Jesus felt about it. He's talked about it repeatedly since his followers' confession of him. As the Christ from then on, it says in Matthew 16, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And from that point, Jesus has moved purposefully towards Jerusalem where he said he will die. And while the disciples are being dismayed or, dismayed or confused about what he said, about what Jesus is doing, Jesus himself has always been the one in control, hasn't he? He's been the cool one. But that sense is shaken by what the apostles witnessed, overheard in the garden and report to us. As you heard, <coughs> it's an intense, intimate scene, heavy with grief and foreboding. Jesus has finished the Passover, his last supper with his disciples, and they head out to the Mount of Olives, to a walled garden there, probably an olive grove. <coughs> For Gethsemane means oil press. As he moves away from the group of disciples to pray, he takes with him Peter, James and John. And these are not just the followers who are closest to Jesus. They are the three who have said that they can share in what will happen to Jesus, who will die with him if they must. And they see Jesus' distress. He is sorrowful and troubled, deeply disturbed within himself. So sad, verse 38 that he can say that his sorrow is almost killing him. I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. And then that intense emotion is expressed in his praying. He falls face down. Jesus is almost physically overwhelmed by the turmoil and the grief within him. Now, what is it that is causing him this distress? Is it just the thought of his coming death, or is it more? My father, Jesus prayed, if it is possible, let this cup 
pass from me. And again, a second time, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus is distressed, yes, by the thought of what is to come. What he describes as his cup, the cup he is soon to drink. That cup he must drink is the focus of his prayer. It's contemplation, the source of his turmoil. Now what's that cup? If we're to understand Jesus' turmoil, understand the cross and what it involved for Jesus, if we understand why Jesus' death is not just another martyr's death for a good cause, we need to get the cup right. We need to understand it. An image drawn from the Old Testament, the cup is a way of speaking of his coming death that interprets that death for us as a death that is God's punishment for sin, as an experience of God's just wrath against sin. Listen to Isaiah speaking of the desolation Jerusalem has experienced when destroyed by the Babylonians and of how that will now change. Wake yourself, wake yourself up, stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand. You who have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. There is no one to guide her among all the children she has raised. There is no one to take hold of her hand among all the offspring she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will grieve for you? How can I comfort you? Your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the Lord's fury, the rebuke of your God. So listen to this, suffering and drunken one, but not with wine. This is what the Lord says. The Lord, even your God, who defends his people, look, I have removed from your hand the cup that causes staggering, that goblet, the cup of my fury. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. See, Isaiah says in its conquest and destruction by the Babylonians, that Jerusalem has drunk the cup of God's fury against their idolatry and injustice, which Isaiah's detailed at the beginning of his prophecy. And the experience of drinking that cup has been devastation and destruction. And now, says Isaiah, that cup will pass to the nations, the idolatrous nations God has used to punish Israel. They will drink the cup of his fury. And the psalmist says the cup is God's judgment on the wicked of the earth. For God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to its dregs. And in Jeremiah you see what a powerful image of helplessness and shame the cup is. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. They will drink, stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. Then you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Drink, get drunk and vomit. 
fall down and never get up again as a result of the sword I am sending among you. The cup is the cup of God's wrath, which God's enemies, those who have rebelled against his just and good rule, whether those who have broken the covenant or those who worship idols and afflict his people, the cup is the cup of God's wrath that they must drink, and it is for all the wicked of the earth, an image which speaks of the shame and humiliation of those who drink it like drunks in their vomit. To drink the cup is to experience God's wrath in the triumph of your enemies over you like Jerusalem, to experience God's wrath in destruction and loss and death. This is what the cross Jesus knows awaits him, is for Jesus. The draining of the cup of God's wrath, the experience of shame, humiliation, the triumph of his enemies over him and death. But why should it be so? Jesus is not the wicked. He hasn't employed violence like the nations. He's no wag and a soldier. And Jesus is not an idolater who has followed the path of greed or selfish desire, but the only one who truly knows and has truly loved his father. And Jesus has never rebelled against the rule of his father. As we saw in Jesus' temptation at the beginning of his ministry, and as we see again now in the garden, Jesus' will is always to do the will of his father. So why Why the cup of God's wrath for Jesus? Now, only God can tell us that, but God has. God tells us in his word that Jesus will drain the cup of God's wrath because his death will be in the place of those who are wicked, those who are rebels, are idolaters, that on the cross Jesus will take upon himself what their sins deserve. The Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord spoken of in Isaiah 53, the servant who will be pierced, not for his own, but for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities, be wounded for our healing, be punished for the iniquity of us all, struck down for the rebellion of God's people. Let's listen again to that great passage. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. 
When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus, you see, has already been identified in Matthew as the servant in his healing ministry. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. And Jesus has spoken of his death as the death of the servant, giving his life as a ransom for many, pouring out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here in the garden, Jesus is facing and accepting the full burden of being God's servant, doing God's will in saving his people from their sins as the angel said he would at his birth. And as the servant on the cross, he will receive the fury, the just wrath of God his Father that destroys all opposition and rebellion against God and restores the good order and blessing of God's rule. See, Jesus is not just contemplating his death. He is contemplating enduring God's holy wrath against sin, something he has never experienced. Enduring that wrath in the place of sinners, who deserve that wrath in the place of people like the people of Jerusalem who have known what God commands and willfully turned aside from it. People like Jerusalem's attackers who have violently taken the lives of others, looted their property and slaved the survivors with all that goes with that. People like the idolatrous nations who tell lies about God, treat him as part of his creation, small, limited, inconsistent, ineffective. People like us, like you and I, children of Adam, people who want to occupy God's good creation and use it as we will without thanks or reference to God, who want to put our judgment of what is right and wrong in place of God's, who want to drive the creator out of our lives and so do what God condemns but seems right to us, lie engage in sexual immorality, pursue wealth at the expense of others, disobey parents, slander and gossip about others, oh, in pride, look down on others. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is contemplating in the garden enduring God's holy wrath against sin, our sin, and we cannot measure what it is for the Lord Jesus to drink this cup. We can name it, we can say what he's doing, but we are so far from feeling what it means for him. You see, we don't know God's goodness and love as he has. We might have experienced it in this measure, but he has known its full measure, unmarred, unmediated from eternity, the very context of being his son of his being as son. Nor do we know the full intensity of God's holy wrath. 
Oh, in God's grace, you might have felt at times some of the discomfort that comes from knowing that God is angry with your sin. But we are shielded from the full experience of God's wrath for now by God's patience. But Jesus, the eternal son, will experience that to the full unshielded and experiencing as the incarnate son on the cross the obscuring of one, the love he has known forever and the substitution of the other, God's holy wrath, even for a moment, is an infinite moment of infinite power. A reality and intensity of judgment not increased with time, nor is its intensity lessened by the sure hope of resurrection. In Jesus' turmoil, in his prayers, we glimpse for a moment what we cannot grasp, what it is for the Son to drain the cup of God's wrath for our sin on the cross, to die in the place of sinners in our place. And Jesus' prayer in the garden also tells us that his death for sin is the Father's will, the expression of the Father's determination to save his people, to ensure the story of creation concludes with blessing, not curse. There he prays, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It is the Father's will to give his only begotten Son in death so that whoever believes in him, as John says, can have eternal life. The Father's will because he loves. And here in the garden, we sense both the cost of that love and its settled purpose that sin and death should not be the last word in God's good creation. And the Father and the Son are one in this settled purpose of love. Though the Son, as is right for any human, expresses a wish that there might be another way of life, for every human life is a precious and sacred gift. His settled will is always to do the Father's will, not my will, but yours be done. And in this we see the Lord Jesus is true God and true man. He is true God in being the true Son of God who from eternity loves and obeys the Father and seeks his glory in all things. And he is true man, the true and better Adam. You see, in the garden, Jesus rejects the choice made in that first garden. For Adam and Eve, it was my will, not your will. Deceived by the devil's lie, they thought life, the true life of human flourishing, is found in pleasing yourself, not believing God's word, but doing what seemed right to you. For the Lord Jesus, it is your will, not mine, be done. He says that life, the genuine human life, is found in believing God's word and conforming our will to his, living life by his commands. And I hope you know that, that if you want to see what it is to be truly human, the people we were made to be in relation to our creator, well, don't look to the press, don't look to popular images, look here in the garden. 
And Jesus' prayer also tells us there is no other way for sinful humanity to be saved other than by the death of the Son of God. I mean, this is the loved Son praying, pouring out his heart to the Father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But we see it is not possible and the Son must drain this cup. Only by Jesus' death, only as God upholds the just sentence of the law on our sin by executing on Jesus in our place, only as God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, can we be reckoned righteous in God's sight and reconciled to the God we had wronged, can we find peace with the living and just God? Now you and I have to reckon with that only this way. Every time you are tempted to think that you can be good enough for God by your own efforts, that you can earn your place in heaven by the good you do, by the law you keep, the gifts you make, the rituals you perform, oh yes, and Every time you are tempted to think that your sin is not serious, that God could just shrug his shoulders and overlook it, you're failing to trust him. You're dismissing his word in favour of your own will. Every time you are tempted like that, think on Jesus' words here and see the pride in those temptations. That you are saying that what is not possible for God the living almighty God, is possible for you. That what it cost God, his son, to do for you, you can do for yourself. That's pride. And as there is no other way, there is also no other saviour than the Lord Jesus crucified and risen. No one other than the incarnate son can die in the place of sinners Everyone else must die for their own sins. He alone had no sin, loved God his Father perfectly. And it would not be right for anyone else except the incarnate Son of God to die in the place of others. Only one who is God can rightly substitute for another, receiving the punishment of the just God. It would be wrong for God to take a creature to bear the sins of another to reward obedience, creaturely obedience, with death. But it is right, gracious, for God to pay the cost in himself, to provide himself the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, sin is real. Your sin is real. Judgment is real. And so atonement must be real. And real atonement is found nowhere else, not in the teachings of Muhammad or Buddha, not in the philosophers before or since. You see, teaching ideas don't deal with sin against the living creator God. Jesus, draining in the cup of God's judgment on our sin on the cross, he deals with sin. Jesus is not contemplating martyrdom in the garden, but being the saviour of all who believe in him by his obedient death in our place. The only saviour, the saviour alone, for his followers make no contribution to this achievement, just like us. They flee, as Jesus said they would. You know, it is a painful privilege to witness the Lord Jesus in the garden, 
to see the distress of his soul as he contemplates dying, dying for us in our place, as he commits himself again, reckoning the cost, to doing the Father's will in saving his people. A painful privilege. How will you respond to what is revealed in this intimate, intense scene? Maybe you're moved, moved just by the emotion that can be so easily felt in this account, but not be confident that you understand what's going on. You know, the language of sin and judgment might be foreign to you or you're not used to thinking of God as living and active, the just God to whom you are accountable or you're not sure how Jesus' commitment to this cup affects you, can give what you, you what you long for, peace with God, the assurance of justice in the world, hope of life. If that's you, move, but not sure. Come and talk. Maybe you're unmoved. Think you're all right as you are, living by your own rules, living to please yourself, that the Lord Jesus moving in an alien thought world to you is, well, he's just wrong, it's just death. Well, God does not speak, and he is speaking to you here today. He does not speak in vain. The Jesus who contemplates the cup is the Jesus who went to his death and the Jesus whom God raised from the dead Jesus speaks the truth and his understanding of the world, a world where the living God is creator and judge, is true. And the truth is, unless the Lord Jesus drains the cup of God's wrath to the full in your place, the cup still remains for you to drink. And that is not me, but God's word. John says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, that is, if anyone believes the devil's lie and worships the creature in place of the creator, including worshipping our own wills, putting our truth in the place of God's truth, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. Now hear this and ask, why should you think your words, your thoughts, what you would like to believe, will establish reality? How can they be more trustworthy when the words of the one who said he would die and rise and who has died and risen, more trustworthy than the words of Jesus? Think about that and change your mind and come and talk. Or perhaps you've listened and seeing the dread of the good Lord Jesus of experiencing God's wrath, you want to be spared what you know you deserve for your sin. The good news is that Jesus is draining the cup to spare you from facing God's wrath. He's giving his life to ransom you, set you free, free from condemnation and death. The Lord Jesus has promised to forgive any who repent and believe the gospel, that he's died for our sins, was buried and been raised from the dead. That is, repent. That, repent, that's turn back to the living Lord Jesus and say, it is right that I trust you, Jesus, and that you are the Lord of my life and that you decide for me from now on what is right and wrong and how I should live. And then you ask him to save you because he is saviour, to forgive you your sin and make you one of his people. 
the living Lord Jesus will hear you and you can speak to him here, now, or at home. He will hear, but come and talk. But maybe you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and this scene might even be a familiar scene to you. Well, I hope you feel again in his words the cost of what the Lord Jesus is committing himself to do and that you know it is for you. And then you ask, how? How do I live worthy of such a love? It's a good question, isn't it? Because as you come to this table today, believer, you will say that the Lord Jesus has loved you enough to die for you. How do you live worthy? Well, three things from this passage. Firstly, by practising the grateful trust that remembers and never forgets. You see, we live worthy by keeping on believing what we learn here, that in Peter's words, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, or in Paul's words, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Believing that and being grateful, grateful that he bore not just the sins of the world but your sins, grateful that the Father gave the Son not just for the world but for you, grateful every day that in committing himself to drain the cup of God's wrath, you need never face it. And that and that, by draining that cup, he has changed your relationship with God and so changed your present and your future so that trusting him now in the present, you can know his love, stand in his grace, reckon yourself his child by adoption and in the future be confident that to depart and be with Christ will be better by far and that you can be assured of rising with him. Now isn't this something that we should give thanks for always, that Christ has drained the cup for us? Isn't it something we can do our souls good by waking up and giving thanks, whatever else is going on in our lives, by giving thanks that Jesus said in the garden, not my will but yours be done. Oh, and believing and giving thanks, believer. We have to always remember that only Jesus saves, saves completely and saves only by his cross. And so we must never let ourselves drift into thinking sin is not serious or that our good works deserve God's favour. Never turn aside to trust other saviours. Oh, yeah, and... We must never let ourselves conversely drift into thinking that the Lord Jesus had not done enough to deal with our sin or that God is still angry with us. We have to turn away those confusing, those those accusing thoughts by turning to Jesus in the garden and always having our confidence in the Lord Jesus to be right with God, to be forgiven. Believing he has drained the cup for us, we firstly practice the grateful trust that remembers and never forgets. And secondly, we live worthy of his love by listening to him and taking to heart what he says to the disciples here, words which are always true for us all. Couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, 
but the flesh is weak. Stay awake, says our Lord, and that's the word he uses in Matthew 24 for being alert. It's the attitude of watchfulness, of staying alert. He's saying, keep watch. Don't give up. Don't drift from being vigilant to do what our Lord says, from living ready for his return. And pray. Pray that you might not enter into temptation, into testing. You see, we have to live each day with a relationship of real dependence on our God, the living God, to keep us. We're in a spiritual battle each day and there are forces in the world that are opposed to Christ and would lead us away from Christ. And in ourselves, we are not strong enough as the disciples were not strong enough in themselves to resist them. So we must heed Jesus' warning. The spirit, our human spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see that, don't we, in Peter, James and John. They were keen. They said that they would die with Jesus, but they cannot even stay awake with Jesus one hour. And in the story to come, they flee and deny. We shouldn't think that in ourselves we are stronger or better than them. Like them, we can be full of good and noble intentions of how our love for Jesus will be expressed. And often when we believe, first we, we, we are, we know that. Sex, I'll never have sex before marriage or outside marriage. Oh, I'll speak up for Jesus amongst my peers at work or in my class. I won't make pursuing money my guide to my career choices. No, Jesus' glory. But we tire or find desire stronger than we expected or we fear loneliness or financial or housing insecurity and what we thought could never happen to us because we were all in for Jesus happens. And we know the shame of that, feel the shame of Jesus' reproach. Couldn't you stay with me? Knowing his love, And knowing we are no better than Peter, James and John, we listen to Jesus. We watch, stay alert, and we pray as we're taught by him. Pray every day that we will not enter into temptation, that our God will keep and strengthen us in Jesus' way. Oh, and thirdly, we live worthy of his love by learning to pray ourselves, your will be done. The prayer our Lord teaches all his disciples to pray in teaching them the Lord's Prayer. The content of our Lord's will is different for us. We will never have to endure God's wrath as the Lord Jesus has because he's done it for us. But that same attitude of love for and trust in and obedience to the Father that is expressed in our Lord's Prayer is to be the attitude of all Jesus' followers to his Father his Father, whom he has made our Father. And there will be times, even of anguish, where you say we'll feel the difference between what you desire and what you know to be God's will. You might, for example, desire revenge on those who's hurt you. But God has commanded us to love our enemies. You might desire sexual fulfilment, but God has commanded that our sexual desire only finds expression in marriage between a man and a woman. And in those times, in our need, we pray 
Not my will, but yours be done, costly as it may be, because in knowing our Lord Jesus, that he's died for us, we know the Father's love in giving his Son for us, and we trust him. Oh, and yes, there'll be times when we'll feel the difference between what we fear and what we know God is asking us to do. We might fear loneliness, but no God has said we can only marry a believer. We might fear the consequences of telling the truth we know at work, but no God has said we must not lie. We might fear our life narrowed, say, by an obligation to ageing parents, but no God has said we are to honour them. And in those times too, we pray, not my will, but yours be done, because we trust our saving God. And there will be times where we know what we desire for ourselves, just as Jesus knew. Desire for ourselves or another, and know at the same time we do not know God's will at least in relation to this particular person or circumstances. And in those times, yes, like our Lord, we make our desire known. But then we say, your will be done. Because we see in our Lord Jesus that the will of our God, even if it seems hard or difficult to understand, is better than we imagine, leads to a glory we cannot comprehend. And at all times as believers, whether in our weakness or our struggle to do God's will or our fear or perplexity, even in the conviction of our failure that grieves us, at all times, we know that because the Lord Jesus prayed before us in this garden, your will be done and it was the Father's will that the Son drain the cup of God's wrath at our sin and that from that garden Jesus went to the cross and its humiliation. At all times we know that turning to our Father, we need not fear his judgment or his anger ever again. Jesus has endured that. And instead we can be assured of his forgiveness for our failure and our love for us, and his love for us, and that we stand trusting our Lord in his grace, and even our suffering will serve his good purpose for us. This is rich, isn't it, to see Jesus in the garden. So, brothers and sisters, see him there. See his distress, hear him pray, not my will but yours be done, as he commits to the cup, to the cross that saves us, and give him your trust, your love, and your praise always. Let's pray. Our Father, in all the busyness and the noise that surrounds us, give us grace to sit a while with Jesus in the garden, to see his turmoil, to hear his words, and to know what he is doing in going to the cross for us. And we pray that you would help us to trust him in his death 
so that we would know the freedom of being forgiven, reconciled to you, knowing your love and not your wrath, and so that we would be moved to love him and trusting him and trusting you in trusting your son. We would live our lives as his true followers, saying always, not your will, not our will, but yours be done. And Father, we pray, knowing our weakness, that you would keep us in this always. In Jesus' name, amen.